is disciplining his people and preparing a faithful remnant who rely on him and no one else. So when all is stripped away, who do we rely on? Who do we go to to reach out for help in that situation? Who do we reach out to? He's showing that he has sovereign control over all world history, preparing the way for a Savior to come who would offer salvation to everyone who would call and rely on him. So in this verse, the prophet tells of the challenges that brought anguish to Israel. The feeling of anguish is usually typically preceded by a tragedy or an event that has occurred. All of us as believers are living in challenging times. But we have a future hope set as an anchor when those challenges come. Do we sometimes look at the darkness, the hopelessness, and dreams that are shattered and sometimes think, does God really even care? Or does he even know? Isaiah insists that here, in the midst of a challenging, dark, depressing time, hope is a present reality. You're like, really? God came to his people first when they'd suffered the most, and from that place he launched salvation for the world, says Nain Ortland. I think it was in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That is the same verse that he used in the gospel to describe the ministry of Jesus in the gospel of John chapter 4 as he launches into ministry. It says the people who walked in darkness means those who are choosing their own way rather than the God's way. And so the nation, as a result of walking in their own steps, according to their own knowledge, according to their own abilities, God says, you're walking in darkness. What does it mean to walk in darkness? It means to conduct our lives without any thought towards God, no regard for God. It's to let sin have complete reign and control of my life. The darkness here that is seen in Israel's day was one as seen as delusion, depravity, despondency, which, by the way, happens when you're walking according to your own wisdom, according to your own ways, not God's ways. The people in question are habitually in darkness of mind and spirit. Does that describe our world today? You look at what you're seeing across media, whether it's on your TV, on your phone, and you see the news that continually comes across over and over again. How much of it is really encouraging? Sometimes I watch ABC News World Report tonight, and the, at the, the last 30-second maybe a one-minute slot, they try to bring up something encouraging after you've just heard 58 minutes of stuff that just would, you know, take your breath away and just make you totally, you know, in a sense, despondent and wondering what, why, why are we even living at times. And in John, 1 John 1, 6, it says this, if we say we have fellowship with Him, speaking of Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In this situation, God brings light, but Israel has done nothing to deserve it. Why is this anguish happening? Why is all this pain happening? Because they've chosen not to follow God. And yet God says, in spite of the fact that you're not following me, in spite of the fact you're not walking in my ways, I'm still bringing hope in the midst of the situation. That's really speaking about God's grace. 
It speaks of deliverance from enemies, affliction or adversity to undeserving men because God says, I want that to happen. We've done nothing to deserve God's grace and neither did Israel. And God says, even do it, you don't follow me, even though you don't want me as your Savior, even if you don't want me as your God because you're worshiping all these other foreign gods, I still want to bring hope and salvation to your situation. The sure hope for a land in Isaiah's day appeared hopeless and forsaken. And yet God had not forgotten or forsaken his land. Jeremiah says, well, what was the problem here? Listen to this, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so instead of turning to me, they're digging up stuff that they think will satisfy the human soul, the human heart, the human mind. And in the process of doing that, they're just digging ditches. That's all they're doing. They've forsaken the fountain of living water. That's who God describes himself as. And yet, Isaiah goes on to state these words. He says in the next verse 3, You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. This has not happened yet. What Isaiah is saying here is that God will cause the nation of Israel to grow and will increase their joy. Was there only been a small believing remnant of Jews over the centuries will be increased at the end of this age. This is foretelling what's going to happen. But again, what's happening here? A world full of darkness. And God says, I want to bring hope. I want to bring joy, even though you don't deserve it. Why? Because he loves this world. So that's pretty amazing. He says, uh, they rejoice before you in this passage. But I believe that this was partially fulfilled when Messiah came the first time in Matthew 10, 2.10. His birth was associated, that's the Messiah, with great joy. In Luke 2.10 it says, an angel brought good news of great joy at his birth. His resurrection was associated with joy. Joy in those who believed in the Messiah in Acts 13.52. And yet... At the closing of the great tribulation, when the Lord comes boldly to deliver his earthly people, they will with joy go over the blessings and the destruction that's been averted. The millennium will see a vast increase in the nation's population. It says they will joy before the Lord. Joy is coming. He said, verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And what God is saying to the prophet Isaiah, there's coming a day when there's going to be rejoicing. There's coming a day when I'm going to put away the enemies. There's a day coming. And you need, you need to put your hope in the fact that that day is coming. The singular pronouns are collective, referring to the people of Israel. The oppressed nation is compared to as an ox weighed down by a heavy yoke and an animal that is prodded and beaten. It talks about the rod of the oppressor. It refers to a taskmaster, which is the same word used of the Egyptian taskmasters in the book of Exodus. Then it refers to Midian in that verse. It's a thing to remember Gideon's victory over the Midianites. And when God delivered Israel from oppressive people that just brought oppression to them, God says, I am bringing deliverance. I am bringing hope, even in the midst of a situation that looks very, very dark. 
And then he says on in verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, we burned as fuel for the fire. This is all part of biblical prophecy. How will God put an end to the yoke of the burden of the staff, the rod of the oppressor? The verse says he will accomplish it by putting an end to war. Another way to describe is that there will be peace on earth. Here's a question. Do we need peace on earth today? Everywhere you look, there's challenge, there's tumult, there's people that are angry, people upset, and it just continues to foment and just go over and over and over. And oftentimes what we do, I sometimes think as believers, is we just pretend we just don't notice. Oh, I'm not watching the news anymore. I just turned it off. Oh, I'm not going to watch those. I'll turn it off. Not a bad idea, by the way. But as we look at our world situation, as we look at a world that is in darkness, and darkness, again, when we say darkness represented, it represented people that have chosen to walk in their own ways, in their own wisdoms, without acknowledging who God is and seeking to follow Him. That does describe a world today? Yes. What's happened to the church today? We see the church uh, growth is dying. We see that churches are shutting down. We're seeing that it just grows smaller and smaller and smaller so that the actual remnant that really believe in Christ are being far and few between. So what do we do as a result of that? Well, I appreciate what we heard this morning during our prayer time for Rebecca is that we need to share the good news of Christ with those who desperately hear there is a hope. There is a hope. Jesus Christ is coming soon. And we have to ask ourselves, as a believer in Jesus Christ, am I living with that hope in my life, hoping for the day that my hope is centered in the fact that Christ is coming back, He's going to redeem me, He's going to redeem His church, and it's going to be a great, fantastic day. When was the last time you thought about that? We often don't. We tend to plod through life. There's bills to be paid. There's kids to be looked after. Uh, there's kids that need to be shuttled back and forth to different sports. And all the different things that trying to take part of life. And we just we go through that motion over and over again. And I say to you, where is the hope? Is that what you're living for? Well, if it's not such a bad thing, providing for your family. It's not a bad thing to look after your children. But is that your only hope? Is that all you live for? I read this week of a guy named Twitch if you saw that, who committed suicide. They interviewed his wife. He said, oh, we haven't even had a fight in a long time. Things are really going well. And they said, well, he struggled with depression. Well, maybe it was because he was financially in a bad spot. So as a result of that, he, that's why he committed suicide. They checked, no, had all the money in the world. Seemed everything fine. Beautiful wife, wonderful kids. And yet he committed suicide because to him he's lost the hope by just living at what this world says. So I ask you again, where is your hope centered? And so, when I say the prophet does to the nation of Israel, he talks about there's a future day when the weapons of warfare will only be good for burning because there will be a God-ordained time of peace. He said, it's coming. And they, these weapons will all be no longer needed because a child will be born in this birth will bring peace to his people for he himself will be the prince 
of peace. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men of whom is of his good pleasure, Luke 2.14. Then we come to that verse that we all know very well, I trust. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The child will come from the Jewish nation. It is a well-known prediction of the birth of Messiah, this verse. And the fact that he will be born indicates that the, his human parents, it speaks of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Then it says here that this son would be given a child. And I, I, I look at that whole aspect. And God, in his ability to do what he wants, that he's a sovereign God, that he rules over the affairs of men, says the way to redeem humanity is to send my son as a baby in a manger. That's how I'm going to redeem the world. That's how I'm going to start the whole plan. Something that many people missed. Don't get it. And so it goes on to say that the government will be upon his shoulders. Well, what government's going to be on his shoulders? It also really re certainly refers to the Messiah's reign in the millennial kingdom. as seen in Revelation 19 and 20 when he will reign from Zion. And he said, and he will rule this world. The term wonderful means extraordinary good or great. Exciting, a feeling of wonder, marvelous, extraordinary, surprising, excellency. What was the name, the last time the name of Jesus Christ caused you to marvel? I sometimes think we forgot the grandeur of who God really is. We've minimized him to, uh, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that, Lord, pray for this, pray for that. And I'm reminded of that passage in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the Lord and all his grandeur and mighty and he falls down and he worships who God is in all his glory. When was the last time you worshiped like that? When was the last time you looked at the God who you professed to love, at the God who saved you and worshiped him in adoration and wonder, not for what he gives you, but just for who he is? Adrian Rogers says this, do not get excited when you think, do you not get excited when you think of the name of, Je <coughs> excuse me, Jesus? <coughs> if not, you've lost the wonder and you have calluses on your soul. The term counselor describes someone who gives advice about problems, an advocate who pleads one's case in court, as seen in 1 John 2, 1. So who do you run to? for wisdom and counsel in times of difficulty or distress. You run to Christ the counselor and be safe and encouraged as a result of that? Or who do you turn to? Do you have a problem today you don't know the way in or way out? Turn to Him. Talk to Him. Because He is God. He knows exactly where you're at. He is a wise counselor. Isaiah 11, verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord, speaking of Jesus Christ, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then it goes on to say that he is the mighty God. 
This could be better rendered, God is warrior. Ultimately, it speaks of God's military might, for no enemy will be able to prevail against them. Aren't you glad we're on the winning team? He has the power to deliver that what is exactly His will to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to quote Dr. Aiden Rogers again. Is this little baby that was upon the straw is the mighty God of Genesis 1. This little baby who held Mary's hand as a toddler and learned to walk, <coughs> walk is the one from whose fingertips <coughs> suns spring, oceans drift. He is the mighty God. Yeah, you want to give me the water? <coughs> Thanks. That's better. He is the mighty God. The little boy playing with the shavings in Joseph's carpenter shop is the one who made every tree, every hill, and every mountain. He is the mighty God. And then he, he describes as being the everlasting father. He is not the everlasting father, which is a bad teaching from modelism. It really means he's the father of eternity. Everlasting is a noun, which means forever, always continuous, because he is like a father, he cares for his people. Because he owns eternity, he gave his eternal life. It's important for those who live in this sin-cursed world to understand that. No one here lives forever. Sooner or later, we all find our own place in the graveyard. We are not immortal. Every one of us is transitory. But he is eternal, everlasting. A dead Christ will do us no good. Dying men need an undying Christ. He says he's a father forever. I'm a father to Josh, Jonathan, Joel, Nicole, and Brandon. But I will not live forever. I will die someday. But my trust and hope is that they put place their faith and trust in an eternal father who is fatherly in his care for them, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to my knowledge, they have. Jesus will live forever. He's also called the Prince of Peace. He is the one whose rule will bring peace. Peace in the human heart and eventually peace on this world. In Colossians 1.20, he says, well, how does, how does he do that? It says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is working to restore man's relationship with God, and he also restores the rest of creation. All things shows the amazing extent to what God has provided for us. This peace, however, came at a great price for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I see in verse 7, Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There will be no end to the increase of His government means... His reign will be perpetual. He will rule forever. King of kings, Lord of lords. The state of the way Messiah's rule speaks and spreads and his peace spreads. And how will that be accomplished? It says this, <clears throat> the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabbath will accomplish this. This prophecy will be fulfilled. Why? Because God is jealous to perform that which he said he would. And so the truth in Isaiah's prophecy 
are seen particularly in one hymn that we like to usually sing at Christmas called Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. Do you think the world needs joy at this point? But they're looking for it in all the wrong places. So, so what do we learn from this passage today? Well, it teaches us about God's grace. If God has humbled a nation or person, it's not for the final purpose of giving that nation or person honor. It's to bring them to their knees so they recognize we need Christ every day. He brings us down because due to our own sinful choices, it's the only way he can raise us up. This passage also teaches us about the nature of the Messiah, the one whom we claim to serve, the one who we claim to follow. We're told to come as a child. And God's answer to the oppression of a sinful, cruel world is not to subject it by physical force, but to redeem it through a Savior who shed His blood and sacrifice for all their sin. This child was the Son of God. He was literally enthroned on a cross. He would take on himself the sin and oppression of this world. He would in turn give back righteousness, freedom, hope, and joy. Have we allowed him to govern our lives? Have we called on him to save us from our sin? We only know joy, peace, and freedom and sin through our relationship with him. That's the only way it happens. And so the question that I have to ask you today is this. What does Christmas mean to you? What does it mean to you? Have you found the true meaning of Christmas? We say, well, it's always about Christ and the babe in a manger. But even as you as family get together to celebrate Christmas, what is your central theme? What is, what is the one thing you do? What is it? Oh, we have family over, we open presents, we do this, do that. I get it. One of the things I've always done as a family is when the boys were younger, I'd always say, before you open your presents, I want you to open your Bibles, and we're all going to take turns reading the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke, because that's what Christmas is really all about. So I'm going to ask you, do you as a family read God's word on Christmas Day to just look and say, this is the true meaning of Christmas, Christ coming to save the world from sin as a babe in a manger. That's, that's, the, that's the real thing. Do we take our time to just say, to give thanks to him for the greatest gift that any one of us ever received, and that was the birth of Christ as Savior, the gift of eternal life through his Son. That was the greatest gift. There's nothing else that can compare that's under that tree or in your house. And so as you come to Christmas this year, think about what does the world need? The greatest gift that you can give to someone else is to share with them the need of Jesus Christ. Say, so how do you do that? Well, sometimes you take time again. As you hear me say over and over, listen to what people are saying. And as you listen to what they're saying, share with them the fact that what Jesus Christ has done in your life and that he indeed is the greatest gift that you ever received. 
By the way, do you believe that? That was the greatest gift you ever received? Or is it just something you just said, yeah, that's the greatest gift, yeah. Mm. No, really, that gift gave you eternal life and saved you from going to hell for all eternity. That gift washed away all your sin. That gift gave you new hope. That gift gave you new life. Be thankful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. Lord, thank you for Christmas. Thank you, Lord, for this prophecy which would be fulfilled. And thank you, Lord, that it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we come before you, let us honor you. Let us worship who you are. You are the great God, the mighty God. Lord, thank you for the blessing of knowing you as our Lord and Savior. And my friend, if you're here today, you do not know Jesus Christ in a personal way. You've never put your faith and trust in him. I would challenge you to my prayer. Ask him to come into your life to save you from your sin and to be your Lord and Savior. And you can do that by asking even right now. And if you don't know how to do that, there'll be a couple at the front today to talk to you about how you can do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.